Our scripture reading today is from Isaiah 22, verses 20 to 25. This is God's word. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hands. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. And he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house. The offspring and issue, every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. In that day declares the Lord of hosts, and it will be cut down and fall. And the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. A favorite childhood movie of mine is Dumb and Dumber. I tried showing my kids movie this movie last year. It didn't land well. They did not think it was funny. Um, for those of you youngsters unfamiliar with the plot, who has not seen Dumb and Dumber? Yeah. 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 All right. Well, Wikipedia will summarize it for us. Like how I, d- I dignified the Wikipedia entry with a quote slide. The film, the film, guys, film, tells the story of Lloyd Christmas and Harry Dunn, two unintelligent but well-meaning friends from Providence, Rhode Island, who set out on a cross-country trip to Aspen, Colorado, to return a briefcase full of money to its owner. If you've seen the movie, though, you know that when they finally return the briefcase, um, it no longer has any money in it, right? It is just a bunch of IOUs, scraps of paper that each serve as a promise to pay back the owner. Um, It's a great movie. You should watch it. You should remedy the fact that you haven't watched it. Um, Have you ever felt like Christian faith is that briefcase of IOUs? I'm sure you've never thought of that, but think about it. Is your Christian faith that briefcase of IOUs? Grand promises about the new heavens and a new earth, about shalom and flourishing and healing and abundant life that you dutifully carry around with you. But will they ever amount to anything? Is God really good for it? Will he keep his promises? Or maybe in your mind, God's not Harry and Lloyd, but you are. You are Harry. You are Lloyd. Your profession of faith in the gospel, your claim to trust in Christ is that embarrassingly empty briefcase. All talk with nothing to show for it. Do either of these fears resonate with you? That there's something empty in God or something empty in you? And at the end of life, it's all going to be exposed and you're going to be left with nothing. Advent is about sitting honestly with that pathetic briefcase and still choosing faith. It's about this first week of Advent, where there's just a single candle lighting a whole room. It's not bright enough, but you're still here for it. Yes, there are promises that we wanted God to fulfill yesterday. Yes, there are commitments that we can't seem to ever keep. The modern celebration of Christmas invites us to skip the doubt completely and just go straight to celebrating. We're already celebrating. But Advent asks us to pause for a moment. Uh, No fake smiles, no cover-ups. Be honest, the world is still broken. 
because God hasn't kept his promises. Not yet, and it's been 2,000 years. It's a long time to wait. But even still, Christians carry that briefcase around with them everywhere, and they confess by faith that he will keep his promises, that the one and final answer to each and every IOU is Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.31 says, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That is what we do at Christmas. Jesus is our hope. He is our boast. Uh, we're three weeks into an Advent series through the O Antiphons, which are seven ancient liturgical poems, and they capture that hope. Each metaphor uh, listed wisdom, Lord, root, key, rising sun, king, Emmanuel. Each metaphor is that IOU, that slip of paper we carry around with us, and we want God to fulfill. Whether we know it or not, these are desires and needs that God has placed in our heart. Desires and needs which he has promised through the prophets to deliver to, to us and in, in and through Jesus. Uh, so today we're going to cover the third and fourth antiphon, uh, the root of Jesse and key of David, mostly focusing on the key of David. We should I just think about that metaphor a bit. What do keys do? They open what is locked and lock what is open, and they do so uniquely, right? There's only one key per lock. Um, they are particular, specific, and cut just right. In this way, Jesus is the key. Like a key fit for a prison door, he frees us from the chains of sin and death and Satan. Like a key fit for a treasure chest, Jesus opens up for us the promises of God to his people. And like a key fit for a puzzle, Jesus unveils the mystery of who God is and what he's like. So let's pray, and then we'll dig into Isaiah 22 and hope that that snapping noise doesn't happen. Uh, you think it's this guy? Yeah. All right. Well, let's pray for it. <laughs> let's lay our hands on it. Uh, dear Father, we are thankful for the promises of God that you have given us. Um, the Bible is full of IOUs, uh, IOUs that, that we didn't deserve, um, that we aren't really truly owed by merit, but by grace, based on the work of Christ on our behalf, we are amazingly owed salvation. We are owed life and flourishing and peace, hope, restoration, reconciliation, all the good things are owed to us. We're thankful for the ways this year we have been able to cash in some of that. We've been able to receive blessing from you, but, but it's not enough. And so we want Advent to stir in us an impatience, a discontentment where we are still longing for Jesus's return. We are still longing for a day when we will be with him and he with us, when the world will be made perfectly right. That is what we want. I pray that we would hold on to that desire, that we wouldn't uh, give up on those big hopes. Um, encourage us this morning, particularly around this metaphor of key. Would it... Um, would it bind us to you? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
In the Old Testament, the phrase key of David is only used here in Isaiah 22. And it's actually not given in a messianic prophecy. Uh, The key of David is not used to describe this coming perfect leader, but instead it describes a man named Eliakim, who was an initially good leader, but who would ultimately fail. Only later, in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, would the idea of the Messiah being a key of David be applied to Jesus. Um, And so it's odd that they chose this you know, one of seven antiphons, they chose this image that is only mentioned twice in Scripture. Uh, A major theme throughout the book of Isaiah, though, is the unwillingness of Judah's kings to trust in Yahweh. It was a politically tumultuous time. Judah was surrounded by aggressive empires. And uh, if you were to look at a map, uh, Jerusalem is not a well-positioned place uh, for warfare, for warfare. I'm going to just do this guy. Uh, So it's just not a good place. If you So picture Jerusalem in your mind. Um, It's great for times of peace, uh, especially in ancient times. It's at the crossroads of Europe, Asia, and Africa, and so lots of commerce can go through it. Lots of uh, things can uh, spread. That's why Christianity spread from where it was because of how positioned it was. So you had Apostles go to India. You had apostles go to the West. Um, But in times of war, crossroads become crosshairs. It's not a good place to be. Um, And that created a lot of stress for Judah's kings. Um, Isaiah challenges them, though, asking, is this challenge not by God's design? Do you think God was foolish to place his people in, uh, in Jerusalem? And so the Old Testament scholar, Alec Mottier, writes, did not God choose Jerusalem itself as the place for his people and his name? When he chose it, he knew all about its vulnerable water supply, its lack of natural defenses. But the Lord arranged the circumstances in such a way that living in Jerusalem was a perpetual exercise of faith, a perpetual challenge to find security in the Lord. And that's still true today, right? Jerusalem is not a safe place to be. It requires faith to live there. Living and leading in Jerusalem requires trust in God. But instead of trusting God, Israel's kings regularly resorted to their own schemes to protect Judah. And so they would make treaties with foreign nations, they would build walls, they would redirect water supplies, rather than relying on Yahweh, the one true God who, was prom- who had promised to protect and provide for them. Um, Isaiah is clear to point out, though, that that's not just a temptation for Judah's leaders, um, Judah's kings, but it's also a temptation in in the people, too. They want their leaders to find uh, safer ways to be. Uh, Georgia highlighted this last week when she talked about how as much as we don't like authority, uh, we often look to leaders and gurus and experts to tell us what to do. We want somebody to secure us. We want security more than we want faith. And this really is the theme of Isaiah 22. If you read the entire chapter, it's an indictment of the people of Judah for not trusting Yahweh. In this context, though, Eliakim kind of feels out of place because he appears to be an honorable figure. He is an honorable figure, truly. You read the description and and you wonder, like, how is he not the solution to Judah's problems? So listen again. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, And I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. 
And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, but he will become uh, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. Is this not exactly what Judah needs? Eliakim is an agent of God, his servant. He has authority and power. He rules with wisdom and security. He is as a father to the citizens of Jerusalem, worthy of honor. And that sounds great. The problem comes in the next two verses, though. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the seed and shoot, shoot every small vessel, from the cups to all the flagons. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way. And it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. So the fall of the good king Eliakim illustrates a different way to resist trusting in God. And so Matier again says, the reliable office holder attracts to himself the respect and, respect and confidence of people. But should this become a reliance on a human person replacing reliance on the Lord, the end is calamity. And so the people basically said to themselves, I'm not going to trust God, but I'm going to trust a king who trusts God. And there's a difference. Can I ride on the coattails of his faithfulness? And while I'm at it, can I hitch to his character all of my selfish and ungodly hopes and dreams so that when God blesses him with security and riches, he kind of accidentally blesses me too? That's their vision. They basically turned Eliakim into an idol, which is exactly what God doesn't want them to do. That is not the purpose of the king. Eliakim is chosen by God to be like a peg in a secure place, and here peg refers to a tent peg that would hold firm the tent of Judah in the windstorm um, of the empires around them, but instead the people treat Eliakim like a wall peg on which they can hang all their selfish hopes and dreams and expectations. Eliakim's going to fix everything. He will protect us. He will provide for us. No repentance is needed on my behalf. No change. No trust in God. I'm just going to trust in Eliakim. But Isaiah 2.22 has already said, Stop trusting man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? They were fail, falling into the same trap, putting all their hope in men. And it seems, at least, we don't really know, but it seems that Eliakim fell into the same trap himself, where he imagined himself strong enough to hold everything. He must have thought to himself, man, I've got to protect these people. It's all on me. They're never going to repent. They're never going to change. And so how can I make life such that they don't need to repent? How can I protect them from their need? Is there any way for me to be faithful in their place, to bear all their wants? And in so doing, he went outside the bounds of his mandate. He considered himself, and the people considered him more important than he actually was. Eliakim quite literally has a Messiah complex. And for that, Eliakim and Judah both fall, both from inward pressure and outward pressure. So look again at verse 25. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, 
and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. And so first you have the peg giving way, and so that's Eliakim simply not able to hold on to all that he was trying to hold. It just collapsed from inward pressure, his own limitations. But there's an outward pressure too, so that God is actively orchestrating Eliakim's circumstances to take him down and to force humility on him and the people. So verse 25 doesn't only say the peg gives way, it also says it will be cut down and fall. Surely there is a lesson here for every, pers- every pastor, every church member. Jesus actually applies the language of keys in the New Testament to the church, to Peter uh, in Matthew 16. I will give you, Peter, representing the church, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Referencing this Isaiah passage. And if you think about that, what that means It's a tremendous authority and responsibility that we have as the church from Christ, both as a church collectively and then specifically as pastors, as agents of God's kingdom. We hold the keys together. And as pastors, Adam and I hold the keys in a special way. And yet still, you should not hang on me what only God can hold. You should not hang on the church what only God can carry. You should not allow other people to hang on you what only Jesus can do. How many of us have outsourced our faith and thinking to Christian leaders, both near and far? And how many Christian leaders have, like Eliakim, taken on more than they should have and fallen ingloriously as a result? The the stories are endless. Um, I used a big study Bible all through high school, a John MacArthur study Bible, Um, Big fat book, and it really did help my faith a lot. It really helps me um, put, put the Bible together, um, and I'm very grateful for it. But there was a moment in college when I realized that I needed to give it up because I was just reading the study notes and not the Bible. I just like found myself just only reading the notes um, and just taking that, that being what I was doing. And I, and, and I just realized somehow the Spirit just said, like, hey, you just need to get one without notes. Um, I was outsourcing my brain to one man so that he was virtually telling me what to believe. And given the trajectory of MacArthur's ministry of late, I'm glad that I stopped doing that years ago. But it's always a temptation to just replace, replace it with another person, right? And so it could be John Piper or Tim Keller or John Mark Comer or whoever, whoever the person of the moment is. And then to be angry or disillusioned when they can't hold all that I'm asking them to hold. Paul avoided this temptation of Eliakim in 1 Corinthians when he writes, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So what then is Dave? What is Adam? What is citizens? What is reality or epic or sunset church or Christ church? We're all servants. Praise God we're servants. That's a remarkable place to be, right? To be servants of King Jesus, the King of Kings. But it's, it's a high calling, but it's also a low calling, right? We're servants. Just servants through whom people believed as the Lord assigns to each. Uh, many of you are new to citizens, and so I'm, 
super excited for you to be here, um, to be part of this family. Um, I love our church, and I'm overjoyed to be given the privilege to pastor you, uh, to uh, serve you, to I want to be actively involved and invested in your life and growth, but please do not hang your every hope on me. It's so important that I don't over-promise what I can do. Please do not think that Citizens is the answer to your every problem. It is not. We cannot overpromise what citizens can do because if we do that, if I do that, I and citizens both will be torn down like Eliakim. By my own limitations as a human being, just because I'm going to burn out, but by, also by God himself because he wants us to trust him and no man. He wants our boasts to be in Christ. Faith in me or in citizens or in whoever is a crude and blasphemous substitute for faith in God. We are not saviors, we are not kings, we are not Jesus, only Jesus is Jesus. We are merely servants through whom you believe if God gives the increase. Now, admittedly, I'm flattering myself. No one who spent more than five minutes with me is mistaking me for Jesus. I'm not Eliakim either. Isaiah 22 would not be written about me, right? Uber competent, strong, father to all. You know that, but the point of Isaiah 22 stands. Be careful where you put your hope. Now, if this is the point of Isaiah 22, to not hang everything on your leaders, how did Key of David become a messianic title? I think it's because we still long for a leader we can hang everything on. Even though experience teaches us not to do that, we want to do that. We want someone who can hold all our stuff. I read recently um, a great line about expectations in relationships, and it said that expectations are planned resentments. Uh, be careful the expectations you hold of others, especially unspoken ones, because you're just setting yourself up for a future resentment when it inevitably doesn't happen. And there's a ton of wisdom there, but there's also a lot of grief in that statement. There's a lot of sadness. Why can't I have expectations in my marriage, in my friendships, in my church? Why can't I expect rich, loving community? Why can't I expect wise, unselfish pastoring here? I know a number of your stories, and so I know I don't have to tell you to manage your expectations at church because you've been hurt in the past. And so you come guarded, but that is plainly not the way it should be. That is grievous. And Advent names that frustration. It names that longing and it honors it. It honors the ache in our hearts for someone strong enough to hold everything, to hold us. It's not just laziness and stubbornness that keep us searching for a savior, for one person to revere and to idolize and to outsource all our cares to. The truth is, I really want a peg on which to hang all my junk. One peg for my hopes and longings and heartaches and needs. And yes, my sin and shame and immaturity and failures. One person that I can hang everything on. We search for a savior because we need a savior. We search for a key because I need a key. 
Isaiah 22 hints at that yearning that all of us have for a true Eliakim, a leader that we can invest everything in, a leader we can idolize, a leader we can worship. And you can't worship Eliakim. God knows you can't worship me, but we all want to worship someone, one person who is everything we need and want, an everlasting father who will love us perfectly, never selfishly or foolishly, but always looking out for our good, a wonderful counselor who always knows just what to say and what to do, who brings true comfort to our deepest trauma. A mighty king who takes over and takes charge and makes everything right. A prince of peace who will finally give us rest from all our enemies. Including the entrenched enemies inside our own hearts. A savior who rescues us fully and completely. Who saves us from every danger. A lover who will never leave us and never hurt us. Who will call us beautiful delight in our every quirk and embrace us forever. One key that unlocks every promise, every chain, and every mystery. And we don't really want to have to find different people for all those things, where I I have this person over here, and this person over here, and this person over here, and I have to manage all these relationships. So many of us are managing multiple relationships, multiple masters for multiple needs. So that we've got a spiritual guru here and a life coach here and a romantic partner here, a provider over here. Really, though, we want just one, just one person. Can I have just one person? And the season of Advent calls that desire good. It's not lazy. It's not codependent. It's not a sign of weakness. The season of Advent tells us, don't manage your expectations. Don't expect less. Expect more. The beauty of Advent is that it is simultaneously honest about the disappointments and frustrations of the present world and full of brazen hope for the return of Jesus Christ. Eliakim could not bear the weight of all the people's hopes and dreams, but Jesus can. How do we know that Jesus really is the key of David? How do we know he's not just another Eliakim? How we know Jesus is the key of David because he is also the root of Jesse, David's father. This metaphor of root is also very rich, but I want to just focus on how fascinating it is that these antiphons stand together. That he is both root of Jesse, key of David. Um, We know that Jesus is the key of David Because Isaiah 11 says that the Messiah will be a shoot from the stump of Jesse in verse 1 and the root of Jesse in verse 10. And so how does that work? How is that possible that a shoot, a new green sprout from a fallen tree, can be the Messiah? And the Messiah can also be the root of that same tree in verse 10. And the New Testament turns this over and over again. Whereas Jesus is both a descendant of David and the source of David. He's son of David and David's Lord. And why is this important for us to notice? In our constant search for saviors, people and ideas and things which we believe will be the key to our freedom and flourishing, we're always after something brand new. Right? A new job, a new plan, a new partner, a new church, a new habit, a new key. But what we really need is not something new, but something very, very old. 
someone very, very old, timelessly eternal even, to use the philosophical term. God is outside of time, which means he is eternally old and eternally new at the same moment, all the time, old and new. Jesus is the ancient of days. He is the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from the dead. This is why Jesus has the key. This is why Jesus is the key. Um, I've joked before that for folks looking for something new, Christianity is so old it's new, and they should give it a try. What new solutions do you think will finally unlock the problems of your life? What new keys are you looking for today? What would you say is the one thing that if you just had that thing, life would be smooth? Money? In the moment, that's mine, honestly. I think it would fix most of my problems. What do you think is the key to fixing your problems? Marriage, family, more time, better health, better friends, better job, better city. What's the key not just to your flourishing, but to the world's flourishing? What will fix America? What will fix the globe? Better politics, more education, scientific advancement. These are the keys that we think will unlock, will open the lock that's holding us all back, but it's not true. Could it be that what we actually need is not something new, but something really, really, really old, like thousands of years old? Simple faith, old-time religion, nothing fancy, nothing innovative, but something that will get to the root of our true need, our need for committed love, our need for restoring grace, our need for eternal life and lasting peace, our need for secure freedom. Jesus can meet that need and more. What are the solutions you keep trying to use to fix your life that you need to put down in faith so you can pick back up trust in Christ? Are there ways this week you can hold forth Jesus as the key to your life? Maybe you've never given Jesus an honest try and now is the time. You've been carrying around this suitcase of desires that you don't know where they came from. God gave them to you. But you're carrying around this suitcase and nothing and no one has ever been able to crack the code. Nothing has been able to fulfill. Could Jesus be the one? Isaiah 22 is the only place in the Old Testament where the phrase key of David is used. And the only other place in the New, in the New Testament is Revelation chapter 5. Let's read. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. The apostle John is recounting his vision and he's weeping here because he's longing for redemption to be complete. He wants the story to be over. He wants it to be finished. He wants history to move forward to its final end. And he, he's tired of the way the world is. And he weeps at the thought of it never ending. But then one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing 
as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Because you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus qualifies to be the key of David because he's God, the root of all things, and because he, as God, became man and willingly died for his people. That's what makes him the key. Revelation says that he's worthy to take this role and to close the story, to unlock its seals, to be the key because he was slain and by his blood he ransomed people for God. Like Eliakim, he became the peg on which we could hang all our sin and failure. And like Eliakim, our sin ripped him from the wall, ripped him from his place. He was cut off, killed on the cross both by us and by God for our sin. Unlike Eliakim, though, his weakness was not his failure but his strength. It was the means by which he saved us. His death is the power of God to redeem And so if you find yourself unsure of trusting Jesus to be your key just because he's God, maybe you can trust him to be your key as the only God who died for you. Where have you rooted yourself? What is the source of your life? What is the key to your freedom and flourishing? Is there any better root than Jesus? Is there any better key than Christ? who rescues you from the prison of death, not just by opening the door, but by swapping places with you. Don't settle for anything or anyone less than him. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful that you are our one Savior on which we can hang all our hopes and dreams, on which we can hang all our failures and sin. We can depend on you fully for everything. Father, would you give us singular devotion to you? Would you make us lean on you as root and key? Father, would we draw our life from you like a tree draws nutrients from its roots? Would we think of you as the answer to all our problems, all our fears, as the key to every treasure, as the answer to every mystery? Father, would you help us have faith in you to not overburden ourselves, overburden others with burdens only you can hold? Thank you for Advent. Thank you for the gospel, which encourages us to not manage our expectations, to not become cynical or defeated, but to hope fully in the Lord for a full and complete restoration of ourselves, of each other, and of the world and the universe. We pray all these things in Christ's name.